Hey team, welcome to episode 86 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. In this episode, we dig into partnership hurdles. We often refer to partnerships as work marriages because they consist of collaborative dynamic that demands time, money, and effort to be successful. Sounds very romantic, doesn't it? We'd previously discussed partnerships in episodes 10, 41, and 43, but today we'll share some real life examples of conflicts and partnerships and illustrate how strong partnership agreements can help mitigate these risks. Our fearless leader, Charles, will not be joining us today, so in his place, I've invited the CWA partner and financial advisor, Mr. David Forbes, to weigh in and share his experience. David previously made his transition talk debut and podcast voice in episode 78 when we talked about business structures. So we already know he's great. So welcome, David. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. We don't ask many people to come twice. And so, you know, really I, feel, special. I feel very honored. Okay, good. <laughs> Aside from being an experienced podcast guest, David has been with NDP's affiliate company, CWA, since 2009, where he first joined the tax department, then transitioned to financial planning, and today an equity partner. Bravo. His ability to connect with both his clients and other associates make him a sought after mentor and educator within the planning team and so happy to have you here today. So you have some experience with partnerships. A few. Yes, just a few. (laughs) Just so for all of you listening, you know, again, go back and listen to those episodes 10, 41 and 43. But I think if Charles were here today, our caveat and our kind of brief primer before we jump into the actual content would be partnerships really do require you to be financially and emotionally ready to have a spouse in your work life. You know, your practice has to be big enough to support that person who you're bringing on as partner. You have to be ready to let go of a little bit of control and a little bit of money. Clearly, though, the benefits outweigh those risks and those kind of downsides. They're going to give you back time, hopefully. They're going to hopefully make your practice more profitable and more productive, but they do require a lot of work, right? We need enough space. We need to make sure that our staff see us as equals and that we're communicating effectively, just like at home, right? There's life is not going to be always roses. It's going to have a lot of bumps and you're going to experience hard times. I mean, I think all partnerships who lived through COVID or have lived through the various life, just stages of disability and death and dissolution of a partnership can all speak to the fact that the communication involved is really critical. And the basis of all of those things, right? Like we hope everything goes great, but the basis of partnerships and when things go wrong, the partnership agreement or the operating agreement and having a really strong operating agreement when things go wrong is really, really important. And we often get a lot of pushback, right? At NDP as we help establish doctors help make their associates partners or they bring on, you know, an outside person to be partners. Sometimes we get the question of, well, okay, we have this purchase agreement that I know I need, but like, you know, it's operating agreements, fine. Like, do we really need that or what goes in there? And really I will say, and I'm, I'm sure you'll say the same thing, David, that like, it's actually the more important document of all the legal documents you're going to enter into. Yeah, absolutely. And sorry if I'm going to cut you off. No, here, go. I think not enough importance is put on that just because, you know, we joked, we were talking earlier, partnership agreements used to start out with just a couple pages to it, handshake agreement, let's do this thing together. And now we're getting them and they're 40, 50, 60 pages long because there's about 50 pages worth of uh, other ways or new ways that partners have screwed each other yep. in this situation. And so how do we contractually obligate ourselves to behave in a certain manner, do things the right way, compensate each other so that we're not in violation and we have things at least written out in paper to where emotions kind of stay out of the way if, if we've got to get some big, nasty and ugly decisions yeah. at that point in time. Yeah, I truly think about this from a relationship standpoint. And I don't know if you and your wife did this, but like when Chris and I first were together and we were together a long time, we had known each other seven or eight years, but we actually went and talked to someone and they're like, how will you spend holidays? 
And Chris and I were both like, after you have children, I was like, at my parents' house, of course. Exactly. And it starts all these conversations that you don't know you're going to have until it happens. And I was so grateful that someone kind of played a little devil's advocate with us. And that's what we do here, right? Like this agreement, if you're a buyer or a seller listening to this today, this truly applies to both of you because everything in your agreement, I shouldn't say everything, a lot of things in that agreement is going to be for either of you, right? And you can think that you're the younger person coming in. And so the retirement clause or the disability clause or, you know, something isn't going to apply to you. It's going to apply to my senior doctor first. But we have seen plenty of instances where the younger doctor has been the one to take that route or had something unfortunate happen in their world and they've had to fall back on that. So really, this is for both of you. And I highly encourage anyone about to enter into a partnership relationship to put the shoe on the other foot. Think about what the other person is looking at when they look at you so that you can kind of understand that this document is truly intended to protect you, even though we're having to talk about some pretty yuck things sometimes. Okay, so I'm going to start with one. I know I'm sure you have some things that you want to chat about as well, but let's start with the first one because we hear this a lot from buyers. Oftentimes have a buyer who's going to buy into a more established practice. It's the first partner or sometimes even the second that this partnership has had. And the young buyer is like super driven and wants to invest and grow and expand and just has that like young buyer energy. And the senior doctor really is kind of like, okay, well, great, but I'm kind of looking to either stay where I am or slow down. That's why I'm bringing you on. I'm not sure I want to take on debt. What has your experience been kind of in that role? And I know you have a lot of younger clients as well. Yeah. So there's sadly not one solid answer to that question because it's all situational. And if I've got this young driven doctor, they're wanting to grow the practice or invest in this new machine or do something a little bit different and that sticker price is my senior doc is going to be, I'm not doing that. That's ridiculous. I've spent my entire career trying to get out of debt and do things a little bit differently. And I'm trying to back down or slow down. So that's where some of the conversations do start to lead up to actually when the partnership begins, hopefully those conversations have actually been had in advance of this so that if there is the intent to grow, to move, to renovate, anything like that, we've spelled a lot of this out on the front end. And maybe the young doctor actually knows that they're going to be the one bearing the brunt of a lot of this and that's an opportunity because I see the long term. Maybe that is a discussion on the senior doctor potentially maybe not being an owner much longer and it's just a slow stair step to get them out of ownership over time. Is there a time period where you feel like it's fair to say, hey, junior doc, you're going to bear the brunt of this because senior doc has X number of years left versus like, because clearly, and I guess depending on the technology or whatever it might be, senior doc's probably going to get his share of the profitability of this thing potentially. So is there a kind of a line where maybe it makes sense, even if it's debt or investment that you say, hey, senior doc, it really is still fair that you're doing this. Yeah. So I would say if senior doc is going to be in the practice longer than a couple more years as an owner, it's going to make sense for the partnership to make that investment going forward. If it's a quick turnaround, quick transition, and they're only going to partner 18, 24, 36 months, I think we have a different discussion at that point in time. What about if it's for procedures, I'm going to start doing implants or whatever it might be that the senior doc has no interest in? What's your kind of take there? And is that something you spell out in the agreements? Uh, Yeah. So implant specific, for sure. I've got a lot of practices where a lot of the young doctors are starting to bring those procedures in-house and we allocate 100% of the revenues and 100% of those expenses back to that producing doctor. So the young doc's going to get the benefit of everything that's coming in there. Is there some profit that gets sprinkled across the rest of the practice? Yes, there is. But the young doctor is going to be rewarded for the risk that they're taking there for sure. And that's spelled out initially. So both people know what they're getting into. They know what they're getting and not getting. So there's not any of that like 
resentment or harboring of this is mine, this is yours. It's just, this is what we've agreed to in our partnership. That's right. So at least under the Cane Waters methodology and how we set up partnerships, we specifically allocate certain types of direct expenses. So lab is likely one of the biggest ones we do spell out because I might choose to take the cheapest lab in mm-hmm. that's out there. And you might decide that like, I don't know if you can do this, but maybe you want to make an implant. I, I don't yeah. know if that's really a thing. We'll um, it and it's going to cost a ton of money for you to do that. Well, you're going to pay for that. I'm not going to. Yeah. So we like to specifically spell that out. Yeah. And I think that's an important piece of this, right? Because, and I don't think we intended to talk about this piece of it, but I do think that the allocation of expenses and who is paying for what and how are we splitting money, that's like a basic, like 101 should be in an operating agreement. That's not even like a challenge or a hurdle. That's just something that should be in there. But I can't tell you how many operating agreements we look at that don't actually spell that out. But what's crazy is, to your point, I don't think we're going to focus on this a lot, but I've seen so many partnerships have like knocked down drag out fights over something on how they were supposed to be splitting expenses. And then I come to find out my partnership agreement said we were going to split pension costs this way and this way. And I picked up $2,400 more than this sorry sucker did seven years ago. And it's been eating at me. And then just all of a sudden we get to a conversation in partnership meetings. Hey, David, would you tell my, would you tell my partner that this happened? <laughs> or like, dude, he's sitting right next to you. <laughs> just tell him. He heard you actually say it, but I'll repeat it for you. And so it gets to be very uncomfortable. And literally that came back down to 2400 bucks out of a $7 million practice. Mm-hmm. So following how we want to split money, being pretty precise about it. Giving all, it to your accountant saying, hey, this is how we've agreed to spend money or split money. Like this is what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, we can joke that I'm the touchy-feely planner here at the firm, but money's emotional too in how people spend their money versus how you might spend my money. Two totally different conversations. That's actually a segue into one of the things you had said you wanted to talk about is just like that difference in maybe the more conservative versus more aggressive, more self-starter versus kind of pay someone to do everything. Like, tell me a little story about that one. Yeah. So to kind of get down to some, I guess, particular stories, uh, just... I've got clients that just feel like their time is better suited in the chair or producing or meeting parents and being out in the community, marketing, doing something along those lines, as opposed to just running down to Home Depot because I saw that light bulb burned out or I saw that the screw on this chair fell off. And instead of me going to find the comparable type of screw or nut, whatever, I'd rather just call a handyman and pay somebody a hundred bucks to come in and fix it when I can be out there instead of driving to Lowe's or Home Depot, I could have produced an extra 1500 bucks in that hour. But that drives some people crazy and people be like, well, if you're going to pay somebody that kind of money, you clearly don't value dollars. You don't value money. I think people value dollars a little bit differently. And is it the actual dollars and cents or are you actually valuing people's time and efforts? And when those don't line up and you've missed the boat on identifying that in the first two, three, four years of being an associate with that person, there's clearly some communication styles that were not addressed early enough in this relationship to where that should have never been an event, to be honest. Yeah, so funny because I do feel like there's a certain type of person who sees ownership as doing all of the things for the practice, like shoveling the snow and like replacing the bulbs and doing all the things that make it a building. And that's kind of like a little badge of honor that they have. And when they have a generation, and I hate to say generation, but I do think it is a generation which says, hey, like, I'm happy to do those things. I can, but it's just not valuable. And if I have four hours that I have and I'm going to, I can be productive or I can do, I'll pay someone to do that. And that's worth my time. I think that's 100% true. And I don't think there's enough conversations that happen in the front end. I also think that even if there are conversations in the front end and you can identify that, do you have partnerships that kind of do the whole like, hey, I'll pay you an additional like management fee or I'll pay you an extra, maybe a higher per diem if I'm an ortho, whatever that looks like to do those things because I know 
I want you to feel valued for those things. And I don't want you to think that I don't value you for doing that. It's just not how I'm choosing to operate. Yeah, that's partnership to partnership, to be honest. And I do have many that will pay the partner that is in charge of keeping up with their CPA to get the books reconciled. They'll draw an additional monthly stipend, a thousand bucks, a couple thousand bucks. Is it a, a nominal dollar amount at the end of the day? Probably, but it's indicating that, hey, we appreciate you doing a little bit extra for the practice while I decided to leave and go play pickleball <laughs> with the kids or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Instead of sticking around and doing the quick books for the rest of the day. Yep. And I think if you can identify that, understand that, be honest with yourself, about what's going to bother you and what's not, it will make a much smoother, longer term transition. Okay, I'm going to throw it to you. Give me another one, something else that you've seen that you feel like a good partnership agreement would have or did fix. So one of the things that I really like about how we track our financials and our partnerships is we do what we call splits. And within that, it itemizes out every dollar in the practice or that's in the bank account down to the penny of how much belongs to you versus how much belongs to me. And hopefully we have identified a working capital amount that we need to leave in the bank at all times. And so that basically we don't overdraw the account. We know that there's going to be cash to pay the next round of payroll, the next supply bill, things that come through. Now what ends up happening, especially the first couple months of new partnership, usually there's not a whole lot of cash in this brand new bank account, or we've seeded it with a little bit of money and we're trying to run a little tight. Selling doc or senior doc in the situation is kind of used to taking out a certain dollar amount of cash out of the business. And they continue to do so, and they start basically overdrawing their balance in the account. And new young doc, they're like, well, heck, there's only so many dollars that are here Mm -hmm. in the bank account. You're overdrawn, and I can't take my draw that I need to be taken out of the bank anymore. So basically, you've kind of become a creditor to your partner at this point in time, or you're the bank to your partner at this time, depending on the side of the table you're on. That creates a lot of issues too, because I mean, I I don't really want to go up to my partner and say, hey, buddy, you're really, really overdrawn by like 50,000 bucks. And I would like to take a paycheck to pay the bills at home. But that is a huge, huge situation that we run into pretty quickly if it's not addressed at the beginning. If someone's kind of going into a new partnership and you know their seller has never had a partner, how best do we address that in the documents? Is that conversation? Like, what does that look like? Yes, all of the above. All of the above. <laughs> so it's lining it out in advance uh, because whenever we get the legal documents, we're still several months out from this partnership actually beginning and it's itemizing out. We know what the overhead of the business is. Let's try to run it a little lean for the first couple of months that we're doing this. And then we've both agreed to leave 100000 bucks in the bank can you get by and they should work with their planner or their advisor, whatever that is, to determine what's the actual dollar amount I need to be bringing home out of the practice on a monthly basis to make sure that I can still meet my goals, my obligations, my financial aspirations that I have. And if I can't get to that point in time, a couple things probably need to happen and that's growth initiatives within the practice and we can hit the ground running with two partners instead of one now, or we need to readdress like what are our spending habits? Do we need to change a few things? And I think those are both really good opportunities, right? there. Yeah. We've had agreements that have spelt out like, Hey, draws can't exceed X or, you know, Hey, this is kind of how we're going to be paid. And, and I always tell clients like you will develop a cadence and you will understand what you can do and what you can't do. And I have clients who say, Hey, this is how we're going to be paid, but we'll agree that we're going to take out X, but we're only going to do it quarterly for the first year. And then we're going to, you know, then start a monthly draw because there is a whole new level of figuring out like, how is this going to flow like operationally? And what does this look like? And if you as a seller have just used the practices, Hey, Hey, I can take a distribution wherever, whenever I need to. I run all of these expenses through the practice. That's a big learning point for you as you look to get your practice ready to bring on a partner is like, how much am I using this practice?
practice to run my home Spotify or my internet or, you know, I have a janitorial person who comes and they clean the office in my house. All of those personal expenses are now going to be your responsibility. So if you don't understand that, this process can be a big shocker because you realize how much money you actually need personally to kind of float what you're doing. Well, and to that exact point, those first few months afterwards, working with your CPA and having the book still done, you'll realize these recurring charges are still on the practice. And that's the importance of having the splits or the reconciliation of this bank account done because it said I should have been making $40,000 a month out of the business. I'm still running 6,000 a month through it and I'm still drawing this 40. So I'm taking home 46, but I'm only due 40. Mm -hmm. So you can see how you can get overdrawn very quickly and it was not malicious. No. But then all of a sudden I'm I'm the new person with this big practice loan. Like there's no, there's no cash to pay my stinking loan at this point in time. (laughs) And that's where kind of panic sets in, I guess, with a a bunch of the young docs because they've not seen it 24 months down the road at this point. Yeah. And I think too, as we talk about expenses, you know, your partnership agreement should do a really great job of lining out these are the things that we would consider personal or discretionary. And sometimes those are things that we might not think about. You mentioned retirement, right? Like it's a pretty technical topic, but essentially if I'm an old guy and you're the young guy, then the old guy might be able to contribute more. And so is it fair that I'm paying, you know, the staff costs that might go up because of my senior doc's ability to like contribute more to a plan? If you have family that work in the practice, is a family in the practice purely for retirement purposes? Are they the front desk who has always been under or overpaid and now I'm coming in and I'm paying 50% of whatever that cost is. So even family comp, rent for buildings, like anything that might have been skewed because I was a single owner and now I'm bringing someone else in, those are things that we need to focus on. And, you know, I'm all about, like, I I truly believe that trust between two partners is like a foundational piece of this. And if you don't trust the person, you shouldn't be doing this. But again, agreements are for worst case scenario. So it's like a trust and verify. Like if that's our intent, let's put it in writing so that 10 years from now, when we have another partner who comes in and adopts this, then they may not think as we do or something happens in life, we can go back and say, okay, well, what did we say we would do? And this is what we're doing. It makes it a little bit more, a little less emotional, a little more just objective. So to kind of drive that point home a little further, you mentioned family members Mm -hmm. in the practice. And how do we objectively talk about them? That is a huge issue. And I'd say that's probably in a third of our practices, or at least a third of my practices, to where a husband or wife has a very important role in the office. And then historically, we've paid them a nominal dollar amount for retirement planning purposes. But then all of a sudden, we have this new partner come in and, oh, she's worth at least like $75,000 a year, and you're going to split half this cost with me. And she should get a raise next year also, and the next year, and the next year. And these start to become very uncomfortable conversations of, we never agree agreed to this or this was never laid out or he quit coming to the office and he just works from home all the time now. Like, does he really provide all this value? And these are awkward conversations that the partner just nine times out of 10, they're just going to ignore it and sweep it under the rug. Oh yeah. I mean, make someone feel uncomfortable is ask them what their spouse is worth while their spouse is sitting there like beside them. I mean, we have to do that for valuation all the time. Like, please tell me what Mary is worth. And they're like, <laughs> she's invaluable. I couldn't replace her if I tried. And I'm like, okay, let's, dollars. let's pretend, let's pretend we have to replace her. And it's hard, but like, I think everyone understands and wants that. And I think that that if the shoe is on the other foot, you know, Mary wants to be paid a fair wage and do a fair job nine times out of 10. And that's all we're asking of that. And again, 
based on the structure that we recommend and that I know Kane Waters recommends, you can really pay Mary whatever you want to pay Mary out of your own individual pot. But out of our pot, we're going to pay what we would pay third-party Sally that we hire for this role. Yep, absolutely. Okay, last one. I think this is an important one. It's one that if you're a buyer listening at this point, we get a little pushback on this. So the scenario is the young buyer who has been told maybe by Charles that this is a great deal, don't mess it up, you know, because we say that a lot. Only when it's true, but we do say it, you know. Or someone who just says, hey, this is my hometown and this is a great practice and I really want to be a part of this practice. But maybe the senior doc is a little bit pushier or a little bit more like, hey, like I earned this, you have to earn it. And so in those partnership negotiations, maybe what we want isn't being heard or things that we think are important are just kind of being brushed under the rug. What are your thoughts on that kind of longer term? Like short term, it's it's great. And honestly, you get in the practice. But if we kind of swallow those wants that we have and say, hey, you know, I'm not going to negotiate. I feel like I'm just getting a good deal and I'm just going to ignore that. Like, what would you tell that young buyer and what would you tell maybe that senior doctor? Yeah. So I guess, okay. So from both sides, so if we're talking from the younger doctor's side and we help represent them at mm-hmm. that point in time, I think a lot of this is kind of pointing out a lot of, not issues, but a lot of opportunities, a lot of things that, that they can have a driving impact with the practice on a go forward basis that if they see opportunities if they see different initiatives within the practice drive with them like run with it suggest it be loud about it and i think on the senior doctor side a lot of times they have a hard time giving up control or i grew this practice and i started it from scratch and they're just lucky to be here that i let them partner with me you're exactly right you did that and they just gave you a wad of cash to buy into this business and and they're your business partner now be open be receptive to hearing some of these new thoughts And when we talk about just like innovation versus wisdom in the practice, you're going to get more from one end of the spectrum in both of those, Mm -hmm. right? The innovators are probably going to be some of the younger guys and those that have come out of school or been in a lot of CE at this point in time, they've got great ideas. They've got new cool stuff to bring. Are they going to run it differently? Yeah, probably. Is it going to be as good and as efficient as a senior doc probably had it? I don't know. Probably not initially. And that's where the wisdom aspect can come in. And we can have some of these good coaching moments to where hopefully we find a good agreeable middle ground. And if not, senior doctor is probably going to win. But just knowing that there is some wisdom in just listening to what the senior doctor has to say and not to be completely frustrated by it. They've done it. They've done it for 15, 20, 30 years at this point in time. And they're slowly adding these things that you want to be bringing to the practice. Yeah. Make the win smaller. Yeah. And I think that's what it is. I mean, I think when we have buyers who come and they want to negotiate like all of the points, it's kind of like, okay, what truly matters to you, right? Like what are your lines in the sand that say, hey, I'm not willing to give here. And some of those I think are, you know, our job. And and I tell my team this all the time. Our job is to educate buyers, sellers, whomever we're working with on here's what you are signing and here is what it means. But every person is going to have their own risk tolerance of Am I willing to accept that now or later? What I like to bring up in partnerships too is you might agree to something now that you really resent five or six years from now because you didn't have the wisdom, you didn't have, you know, the foresight to say, hey, like this is kind of what I think this will mean and this is going to frustrate me over time. So sometimes when we have a strong seller who says, hey, this is what I want and I want to be able to have the authority and autonomy to make certain decisions without you because you're young and you might not know and yada, yada. It's like, okay, let's put a time period on that for the first two years and then right and there's still decisions that we're going to have to make together anything that's going to impact me changing the operating agreement buying selling new locations adding other people associate doctors partners those are things that if you don't trust me enough to make me a partner don't do something unilaterally without me but there are some things you can give on or you can say okay like this is what you want and i hear you let's shorten the time window or let's allow this other you know component or let's legally document it this way so i think not just for lack of a better word like 
rolling over and saying, sure, do whatever. I'm so lucky to be here. Pick what matters to you and say this is important. And I think you find a lot of that out in the quote unquote dating phase. Mm-hmm. So that associateship, you understand what's the motivating reason and root behind why this practice is successful. Why do you want to actually be a partner at this point in time? And if it's just purely financial, or if it's just purely one thing, there should probably be some deeper conversations to have here with that partner. Are we money motivated because I owe a bookie, you know, a quarter million dollars or something (laughs) like that? That's going to, that's going to make me, you know, treat patients a little bit differently. So I I need to understand like what motivates me personally and even professionally before I get into some of these to avoid some of these weird, awkward conversations. We talked about this on one of the Q&A episodes that we just recorded, which were great, by the way, if you want to go back and listen to those. But one of them was like, someone said, what is the best business advice or business resource or something? And then we clearly said, you know, transition talk and accumulating wealth. (laughs) But one of the things was like just books on how to communicate with people. Like if you truly go into this partnership, you're an associate, you're going to have this opportunity to buy in. Like if you can figure out how to communicate with someone, they may not be like you. They may not communicate like you. They may not be driven by what you're driven by. But if you can truly understand that and figure out a way to motivate and, and, and communicate with them in a way that makes them feel like seen and heard, you can get so much further in life. And that's honestly a lot of our partnership struggles that we see are bad documentation and bad communication. And counseling. <laughs> Go to counseling. (laughs) Uh, That's not what our coaching calls are for. Um, Well, thank you so much. This was fun. I feel like we could have another half hour of talking about these types of things, but I think these are some real great examples of why the operating agreement and partnership agreements are so critically important. They clearly require work to be successful, but they offer financial and personal work-life balance, emotional opportunities, and ultimately the ability to grow your practice and like continue that legacy that I know almost everyone is really focused on. So if you're looking for more on partnerships, be sure to check out episodes 10, 41, and 43. If you have other topics you'd love to hear about, partnership or otherwise, feel free to send us a note. And that's all we have for episode 86 of Transition Talk. Thank you, David, for being a part of it and providing your expertise and we'll look to have you back another time. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. As always, make sure to share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet. And of course, subscribe to Transition Talk wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time, friends. Bye.